So in 2004, Oprah Winfrey opened her first school for disadvantaged girls in South Africa. In the last 15 years, she's actually spent over $40 million and a lot of her time investing in these young people and helping these girls to get a good education. But a couple years ago, she spoke with our guest on the today's podcast, Dr. Bruce Perry, and her conversation with Dr. Bruce Perry changed her entire philosophy and educational approach at these schools. She said the fundamental change in her philosophy was they used to ask, what's wrong with this kid? And now they have started to ask the question, what happened to this kid? And I think that really comes back to what was so powerful about the first part of our conversation with Dr. Perry and why we've had so many different people reaching out uh, from coaches and education and teachers talking about the impact that last week's episode had on them. Now, last week's conversation really centered around trauma. Big T trauma, as Dr. Perry talks about it, and little T trauma. Nate, you took the conversation in a little bit of a different direction. Yeah, JP, the second half of our conversation with Dr. Perry is really going to center around some of the things that jumped out at me when I read his book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. And the book is really about his career as a therapist and the things that he's learned about how the brain functions in relationship to just a variety of incredible stories and situations that he's been put in in his professional career. What was interesting to me as I was reading through the book is there's a number of themes that just jumped out of the pages that I thought had great application to our practices in coaching. And so what we're gonna do here in the next 20 to 30 minutes is I'm gonna simply ask Dr. Perry some questions that stem from the book and speak to a lot of the common problems and challenges that we face as coaches. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin alongside my co-host, Nate Sanderson. And every week in 30 minutes or less, we're giving you transformational leadership tools and strategies. This podcast is brought to you by Thrive On Challenge, which provides mentorship for coaches to help them grow as a coach and build their culture. You can learn more at thriveonchallenge.com. You're listening to episode 127, Brain Science for Coaches with Dr. Bruce Perry, part two. Listeners, if you would like the coaching notes to these episodes, you can go to thriveonchallenge.com and subscribe. You'll get a weekly newsletter with an article and the coaching notes to every episode of the Coaching Culture Podcast. Also at thriveonchallenge.com, you can learn more about our coaching retreats and workshops. Now let's get to the second part of our conversation with Dr. Bruce Perry. And one of the things that we don't do a lot of on the podcast that JP and I do a lot of in our workshops and our retreats with coaches is talk about brain functioning and some of the systems in the brain to be able to better understand both our own behaviors and our own responses to stress, as well as obviously the players and, and people that we're working with. So what I thought we might do is I might just bring up a handful of themes here and just see if you can kind of shed some light on you know that First of all, understanding those systems. I'm going to start with mirror neurons here in a second. And sure. just why that's kind of important for coaches and educators and even parents to understand how that functions in our interactions with others. So yeah. speaking of mirror neurons, it's something that comes up you know, repeatedly in the book. And when we work with coaches, I often use this analogy. I've got two dogs in my house. I have a watchdog and I have a dumb dog. And so you know, whenever the UPS man comes to the driveway, the watchdog races to the window and barks, you know, and claws at the window. And the dumb dog 
just starts barking because the watchdog is barking. The dumb right. dog doesn't know why he's barking. He doesn't even know where to look. But he just sort of responds because the other dog saw this threat, right, to the property. Right. And I think that's such a good analogy for, you know, the way that we often mirror the responses and are attentive to the responses of others. And I, I don't know if you could explain that maybe a little bit more, sure. just how important that is when we're working with young people in particular. Yeah, no, I think, uh, first of all, I love that. And that, that example is perfect because it really illustrates a couple of these key points about the, the broad field of what, what we call neurosociology, which is basically the biology of people and groups. And, you know, one of the things that we know about human beings is that we're, we are a social species, kind of like, like dogs are social species, humans are social species. And because of that, we've got all of these apparatus sort of systems in our brain and body that are dedicated to, to trying to read and respond to other people, to keep us part of this bigger whole. Because the lowest divisible unit of our species is not the person, it's the group. We survive by creating effective teams, basically. Teams to hunt, teams to gather, and then those teams share with each other, and we're, we create a healthy whole. And because of that, now, now the other part of that is, is is that um, just, and this is an artifact of sort of evolutionary history of human beings, is that we human beings have always been the major predator of other human beings. And so the, the, there's apparatus in our brain that are continually looking and monitoring the people we're interacting with to see whether or not you're an enemy or you're an ally. Are you going to help me? Are you going to hurt me? Uh, do you like me? Do you not like me? Am I in your group? Am I not in your group? Am I popular? Am I not popular? Am I the right color or, or not? In all of these things, your brain's continually monitoring. And so what the result is that we have this interesting contagion that, you're, that you mentioned that were very contagious to the thoughts, the behaviors, and the feelings of the people around us. And it, we kind of refer to this as the power of proximity. That, you know, when you're around people, you start to be influenced by those people. And, and that's just because that's, a, that's a deeply built into our brain. So I'm from North Dakota, right? And, and I live all uh, in, in the, you know, I live on the East Coast, I live in Chicago, and then I moved to Texas. And within eight months, I, I literally was given a presentation and I said, y'all. <laughs> I'm like, what? Wait, wait a minute. What Did I just say y'all? And I just realized, and that's the power of proximity. You know, you just, you start to become like the people you're around. Now, the key there for a coach is that this now obviously everybody kind of is reactive and and re, is contagious to everybody else but the dominant sort of uh tone for a group is set by the leader of the group now there are going to be natural leaders in your that in, in your team but in the end you as the coach are the primary leader of the team and so what that means is that your enthusiasm, your optimism, your ability to stay calm under pressure is contagious. And, and if you lose your cool, your, it is basically unsettling for the, you know, for your team. 
And I, I mean, one of my favorite scenes in sports uh, movies is when Gene Hackman is is in uh, what's the name of that movie? Hoosiers. And he tells his kid he goes to the team, he, and he looks at him and says, "After you make the shot, with with the expectation that this kid is going to make these free throws." And he just doesn't. He basically projects confidence, and it cal- you can just tell it calms down these kids and it lets them perform at their best level. Um, and you've all of us who watch sports, we can just see this. You can look at a team where it's two the coaches of two teams where the, it's close at the end. You can, if you're a gambler, you know how to read the coach and and figure out who's going to win. The coach that looks like a deer in the headlights they're gone. The coach that kind of looks confident and, and, and is sort of still giving clear, but not hysterical directions, they're going to have a much higher probability of winning. And again, it's so, so this idea of uh, emotional contagion is absolutely crucial to being an effective coach. And, and all, most coaches know this already. I mean, they, they might use different language. They see it all the time. Anybody who writes about leadership talks about it. You know, they may not use this the neuroscience language, but it's it is a fundamental element of being a human being. And if you understand it, you can exploit it to make to settle down your team, to 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 motivate your team. You can energize them when they don't have enough energy. You can calm them down when they have too much energy. You can be you can learn how to play the relational milieu of your team uh, if you can stay in control of yourself, which is the big if. And and so one of the things that I think, obviously, this is the work that you guys do, is, is helping coaches, helping the adults learn how to be in control of themselves, be regulated themselves, think about their own self-care, think about how, you know, how can they develop strategies to sort of leave their baggage, uh, you know, outside of the locker room so they can actually be effective and so forth. But I'm not sure I answered your question, Nate. I, I kind of went off on a tangent. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. And, you know, there's a line in the book, too, at the end of the chapter on, um, I think it was chapter seven, the satanic panic, where you have a, a paragraph there, and maybe you can tell briefly the story. But the thing that really caught me, again, my attention and just leading groups is the you had this line in here, again, that you just said that humans are social animals and they're highly susceptible to this emotional contagion. And I think the thing that really stuck out to me at the end of that chapter was not even necessarily the story of the kids, but the fact that this mythology about this satanic activity in West Texas persisted, despite yeah. the fact that investigations proved that none of it was real. And just yeah. the irrationality and sort of the emotional connection to being exposed to that narrative for such a long time so consistently impacted people's, you know, their memory and understanding of that place and that activity, even though it wasn't real. You know, that it is, you know, I, I know a lot of people have probably heard about like the Salem witch trials and, and there are other examples of that kind of hysteria that persists and that occurs in, you know, the McCarthyism, was an example, and there I might give some modern examples of sort of the persistence of sort of myth about about things, and, and we haven't really talked about it. It's sort of, but 
one of the things that we, in our work, we try to help educators, coaches, therapists, kids, everybody understand that the brain in all, all functions in what we call a, a state-dependent way. And what we mean by that is when you're in a state of calm, you have certain systems in the brain that are open and you can use them. You know, they're, they're open for business. So when you're calm, you can think uh, in a very different way than when you're frightened. And, and the more threatened you get, the more dysregulated you get, the less you're, you have access to the thinking part of your brain. And so instead of thinking about stuff like, is it really true that, that you know, that there are high level Satan worshipers in the government of Texas? I mean, is that really true? That seems highly implausible. Texas can barely pave roads. How could they create this elaborate multi-level system where, you know, they have secret handshakes between law enforcement and the governor to, to, to convey satanic beliefs? You know, it's like, it's so improbable that anybody who was actually thinking with that part of the brain would go, oh, well, that's got to be absurd. But that's how fear is toxic to thinking. So if you get kids that are fearful or anybody and they start feeling threatened, they're much more susceptible to these linear uh, and usually overly simplistic and sometimes overtly false ideas. And this can happen on a team. You know, there are teams that will have weird mythology, you know, that there will be mythology about a coach or about or even worse about a rival. Right. Those guys are so big, they're so strong, they're so fast, they're better than us, we've never beat them. That's mythology. And the more anxious and fearful you get, the more you literally believe it. And of course, then it influences your capacity to perform. And there's no doubt that, you know, we use the, the term in, in sport is that he, they got into his head, right? And that's kind of what we're talking about is that, you know, false beliefs about capability performance can get memorialized when you aren't regulated. And so this state-dependent functioning, again, this is one of the great roles of a coach, is if you can regulate your, your kids, they're going to be less susceptible to these toxic and, and beliefs that will impact their performance. And I think that's such a key point for coaches to understand is that we have to be attentive to that emotional state before we're going to be able to access, you know, the rational part of the brain that, you know, we want to explain the why behind our strategy or the what that we're supposed to do on the floor. But if we can't overcome, or we, as you say, we can't help kids to be able to regulate for the parts of their brain that are going to be able to connect, you know, to that type of thinking, all of our great arguments and all of our great strategies aren't going to land because of yeah. the emotional state that our players are in. Yeah. It's so interesting that when you when you those you know a lot of people that are listening probably watch sports and you know you can see for example if you watch pro football you can just tell when some quarterbacks just are able to sort of they're impervious to the stuff that's going on around them they'll be laser focused and there'll be all kinds of I mean sometimes when they you slow it down it's fun to watch you know you just see this like expressionless face. Uh, uh, of the quarterback just watching the downfield and there's like people flying all over and there's limbs coming in front of their face and there's all kinds of mayhem going on around them but they're like regulated they're focused and that their ability to do that is what uh, helps them perform at this very high level and then there are other you know and again 
you know, you get newer or less experienced um, uh, quarterbacks and they start to be easily distracted by the fray. And when that happens, then they're, you know, they make bad decisions, they, their timing is off. And, and that, again, regulation, the ability to regulate while you're performing, this is a fundamentally powerful um, gift in athletics. And a lot of people kind of will stumble into that state. You know, there'll be people that will like, you know, they'll go like f four for five with their three points on one night. And, and it's just sort of like it's unconscious. They'll talk about the rim feeling like it's really big, you know. And then there'll be a, then the next night they'll go out and they'll like, you know, they'll shoot clangers all night long. And the your mental state, functioning of the brain is state dependent. And one of the major functions of the brain is the smooth motor movement that you can uh, use when you're pitching a ball or when you're throwing a basketball or that kind of stuff. And again, I'm convinced that if if people in sport learned a little bit more about the fundamentals of how the brain works, it would really improve performance. It would improve the creation of this respectful, relationally uh, positive environment that would be healing and, and helpful for lots of people. And, and honestly, it'd be a lot more fun. You know, I mean, it's, there's nothing more fun than sort of succeeding. And, um, you know, Teams where you lose all the time—that—that's—that's that's not as much fun, and 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 that environment can get toxic, right? I mean, it, it you get you 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 all probably have seen these negative cycles where a team will just like, you know, they'll have these expectations and then they'll lose a couple of games and then they kind of spiral down. The whole season just goes down the drain, and the coach can't retrieve it, right? And sometimes so, the coach loses a job in those situations. <laughs> exactly. Well, again, part of what the, the equation that comes in there is that the coach's ability to stay regulated in a way that would stop the, the, the spiral, it starts to get influenced by the fact that he's going, oh, my God, if I don't win, I might get fired. And so the coach's ability to sort of stay regulated gets impacted. And then once that happens, it's, it's all over. So when the coach that starts to read the, the, the papers, that's not good. Don't read the papers. <laughs> you know, it's, well, there's it's, two other themes I want to ask you about here before we get out of here today. One of them is the idea of control and autonomy. You know, over and over in your book, you know, we talk about some of the victims of these traumatic situations. And one of the key factors seems to be the, the loss of control, right? The idea that they... They don't have any impact on their situation or their food or the receiving love and care, whatever it might be. And I yeah. think sometimes that can be a real challenge for coaches is finding that fine line between allowing a team or individuals some autonomy and control, which can be so important. And yet at the same time, you know, struggling with we want to kind of micromanage the way the offense goes or what we do in practice or what have you. But I wonder if you could just speak to the importance yeah. of that that sense of having control and autonomy for individuals. Yeah, no, I, that, it's obviously we could talk about that forever when it comes to sport and, and other things, because it, it, it really is part of uh, parenting, teaching, coaching, and, and that it has to do with just how free and how much control are you going to give somebody when it comes to some activity. And I think one of the things that we always – 
and this just sort of comes from learning uh, parenting five kids, but one of the things that you want to do, you can do is that you can give control over things that aren't as important. And it, then there's less bristling when you exert control over things you think are more important. And so this is where a coach has to sort of think about priorities, right? Um, I think uh, certain things are part of our, our values as a team, and there is no debate about some of these things. Other things I'm flexible about, but you have to be really clear and, and think through your own values as, as a team and as a coach, and then make these absolute crystal clear boundaries and have expectations. And then, but within those expectations, you know, within those boundaries, give people flexibility to, to, to um, have input, uh, to learn how to manage a little bit of independent decision-making. You know, you ultimately do want your quarterback to be able to audible, right? Um, and so if you micromanage and never let the, the person audible, and or if you go crazy when they audible and make the wrong call, you're going to inhibit their the that the process by which they can feel comfortable making independent decisions. And so I think it's one of these things that you have to kind of finesse it. And um, the, 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 the one thing that I think a lot of coaches don't do well, because most adults don't do this well, is be very clear about what those boundaries are that are absolutes. And, and then make it clear why, you know, why you have those absolutes. That's if the absolutes are tied to the values of the team, then they'll be respected. If they're just tied to your authority, they won't be respected. If you just say it's because, but if you give somebody a rationale for why we wear jackets on the plane, you know, why, why does this team, you know, other teams wear whatever they want, Hawaiian shirts, T-shirts, jeans with holes in them. Why, when we travel, are we going to wear blazers? And, and have a conversation with them and say, this is why. And, and I think if you respect people by helping them understand the reason, even if they don't agree with it, they, they will go with it. And I think that, that not enough of that happens in coaching or parenting or teaching. And, and then with you may be the team that says, you know, you're going to wear blazers, but on the field, you got to give these people opportunities um, to demonstrate their their um, their own initiative and creativity, and and and, and so have areas where they're there, they do have the, the options and choice. So anyway, that's the way I would play it. Yeah, no, I think that's great. You know, and I think one of the other advantages of sport, and I think this probably ties into parenting as well, is you know you have a line in the book about giving giving. Well, I would say giving players, you know, the opportunity to make decisions and along with those decisions, the opportunity to make mistakes and experience failure in a situation where there is not a great consequence to calling the wrong audible. You know, it's it's exactly. third down. Now you have to punt. That's a lot different than, you know, your job being on the line or you being a parent yourself. And, you know, yeah. and I think sometimes that's so overlooked when we're working with young people is that we see failure as this you know, sometimes a judgment of us as coaches, right. when in reality, we're creating a, a hopefully a safe place for players to experiment and to explore and to make mistakes 
when the consequences aren't as dramatic as they might be later in their lives. Exactly. And I, you know, to your point, I, I, you know, if you're a sort of a developmentalist and, and you look at how children acquire a skill and, and the same principles go all the way up to acquiring a motor skill, a, a cognitive skill, whatever. Just think back at, to the time when you saw your toddler making a brick tower. They literally made thousands of mistakes. They failed a thousand times before they finally realized that, oh, you know, you got to put them right on top of each other. And you, if you, they learn. But you only really learn meaningful things by making mistakes. Mistakes are awesome. You know, I, I think mistakes should be celebrated. But what we what we do with mistakes all too often is we don't go back and reflect on the mistake. So a lot of times in sport, we get mad about the mistake, you know. Um, but if we went back and sort of like, honestly, this is why in, the, in pros, they spend hours in the film room because they're reflecting on mistakes. You know, they get everything gets graded. You know, they go back and go, oh, you know what, you, you did this. And, and so, you know, when we call that and that guy's lined up this way, you should you gotta need to remember to go that. And go, oh, yeah, you're right. That's a better that's a better way to do this. You learn. See, it's interesting. You don't learn by making the mistake. You learn by reflecting on the mistake. And that's what we need to get better at as parents and coaches and teachers. Um, and, and if you do that in a way that's regulated, See, this is where you take the emotion out of, why did you do that? You know, that's instantly, the person will not be able to reflect on the mistake and learn from it. But if you, later on, you sit down and look at the film and go, look at this. See, remember when you threw that? And that they, 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 they you know, you can tell by looking at this right now that they're going to intercept that, right? So what did you miss? You know, you missed the linebacker over here. And he's like, oh, yeah, so when they when we do this, when we call this play and he's going to run that route, you need to just go, just move away from your first option. And and it's learning and it's repetition. And it's and the, the truth is you get better because you make mistakes. I just saw an article about uh, kind of Russell Wilson and how he's changed his mindset over the years as a quarterback. And he had a line in there that said, I don't see my plays as successes and failures anymore. I see them as data. And I learned from what worked and what didn't work. And I yeah. thought, you know, again, you're separating kind of that, the emotional stakes of a throw or of a read or whatever it might be to be able to really harvest whatever whatever learning and growth you can get from the experience in that play or in that decision. Yeah. And see, and the good thing about that is that once that your mindset shifts as the person in the play, then you're able to stay more regulated in the play. If there's affect, emotion tied to success or failure, you know, if it's labeled that, uh, you know, that that way, then it, as you you start to get more emotional in the moment, and you perform at a lower level, and at that level, you know, as you guys well know, we're talking about fractions of seconds being the difference between success and not success. I mean, when you see the what the way those well, in basketball too, you know, the speed that they're going. And the way they make those passes, I mean, literally, we're talking about if you s slow that down, some of those passes go between people's legs and there's like a quarter of an inch 
of clearance. And, you know, it's and when you look at how often they make that kind of pass and, and how rarely it hits somebody's leg, it's amazing. But that's because they probably hit somebody's leg a thousand times in practice. You've got a line in the book that has just smacked me in the face as a coach that said, uh, I don't even remember what chapter it was on, but they prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. And one of the biggest challenges that I face as a coach, and I know a lot of the coaches we work with, is just the whole idea of like playing time and bench players and role players. And, you know, there's nights where the ninth kid on the bench might play and there's nights where they don't. And the, the uncertainty of like, having to show up and be ready, but not knowing if I'm going to play or how much I'm going to play or who I'm going to end up guarding. I've just dwelled on this since I first read it for months now, just like how can we either a help players in that situation? Um, is it that we need to be better about their expectations or is this a good place for them to be able to, I mean, this is life, right? There's so much uncertainty right. in our everyday life. Like, I don't know th this, this quote has just challenged me as much as anything else I've read that, you know, that they're, they would prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. Yeah, no, it's it, 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 that's a hard one with with sports, particularly as you get up into the level where it's more competitive. And and um, so here's what I would say about that: is that as long as you can create uh, a, a, a culture of inclusion and respect in practice. Um, you're really going to help a lot of those. It's going to be really powerful. And, it, you know, there are kids that go and play college basketball and get two minutes the entire time. But they, but they feel in, in the right kinds of teams, they still feel like they're an important part of that team because they prepare the starters. They work hard against the starters every day. And they work hard, they put in time, and, and then the key is that the coach creates an environment where the starters respect the non-starters. And they, there's overt sort of expression of, uh, you know, admiration, support, gratitude, and so forth. So I think that even when kids don't play, and they know that they're not going to play, if that, again, if you sort of create that climate, it, it, it's um, something that... Uh, is still important and worthwhile and certain enough for those kids. You know, part of what that quote was about is that there are kids that come from environments where there's just chaos and they feel comfortable in chaos. And so what they'll do on your team is that they will do little things, mostly unconscious, to sort of create chaos. And it undermines your efforts to create consistency, predictability, you know, the kinds of things that are healthy. And, and those kids are going to be, you know, as all of you know, as coaches, those kids are some of the hardest to deal with. And um, but with regards to the way, you know, what you're talking about earlier, I, I, I know coaches make those tough decisions all the time. It, again, it goes back to rupture and repair. As long as you are clear and say, listen, I know this has got to be tough for you. I think a coach should sit down with his bench players and, and talk with them and talk about, you know, make sure that they know how you think about them and how important they are to the team, even though they may not get on the court tonight. Um, you do those little things, that's, I think that that's going to uh, really help the, the entire climate for the team. Well, 
Well, before we get out of here, I want to ask you about one more thing. Your second book um, is called Born for Love, and yeah. it's really the story of kind of understanding empathy as this such an incredible skill for our society, and yet one that it seems to be more and more elusive as as time goes on, as we continue to evolve as, as a culture. And there's a couple lines in here that I, I just maybe you can comment on a little bit here, but I love the way that you describe what it means to be empathetic. You know, for one, typically we think, well, I try to understand what it's like in someone else's shoes, but you had this line in here that it's to stand in another's shoes and care about what it feels like to be there, you know, to imagine the world from that person's perspective. And I think tying that in, you, you know, you mentioned in there that empathy is not a skill that can be taught. It has to be caught. And I think sports provides, again, a unique yeah. opportunity for players, for coaches to to experience and to model and to catch empathy. But yeah. you're really clear that it has to be done the right way. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, again, it's this kind of ties back to a little bit about the way the brain's put together, you know. And so we have this top part of our brain, the cortex, where we think and and you think about the future and the past and speech and language and a lot of education and a lot of coaching is targeting the cortex. But the neurobiological networks that are involved in empathy are lower in the brain. And you can't talk to them. You know, um, they, you literally need to be around other people. And those parts of the brain change because you're doing emotional things. You're having emotional interactions and social interactions in the presence of other people. And so you, you, I mean, the term catch, I like that. It's, it's because it gets absorbed into you, but nobody's saying, hey, I'm going to be empathic to you. You know, they say, okay, this is empathy. Um, but what they, you do is you, you watch a coach go over to your teammate who you all know is a complete jerk and treat the, him with respect. And or you see the coach go over to somebody who you know is just ready to blow up, and you see the coach just quietly make a comment to him, and they walk off together and take a walk and have a conversation instead of him blowing up like he did in math class, because the teacher came over, got in his face, and said blah blah blah, and it was so cool because we knew he was going to blow up because you know it's him, and so the teacher comes over and says, wags her finger, and he blew up. That was kind of fun because we didn't have to work for about 15 minutes and uh, got to hang out. And But the coach comes over, we're, he, we're, he's going to blow up, he's going to blow up. And like, wait a minute, he didn't blow, didn't blow up? What happened? And so you see thousands of these interactions. And, and as people become part of a t family, you know, your team, you start to feel connected to them in different ways. And you build up repetitions with, empathic learning and and again if you talk to anybody who was in sport for any period of time they'll talk about this all the time you know what do you miss you know they, they miss all kinds of things about being part of the team and though that part of the experience I mean it was I mean I was really good in sports and I, I kind of remember some of the races and stuff but mostly I remember being with my teammates and being part of this group. And it, that's the enduring uh, and powerful part of sport, I think, is the relational part, that it is an opportunity to do something together 
with people you care for and care about and uh, working towards a common goal. And I think what you said before, Nate, is so important is that it's you have all these incredible opportunities for practice and, and big emotions and uh, learning about independence and decision making and loss and how do you handle disappointment and how do you handle success. But none of it really is that high stakes, right? It's it's great practice for all the rest of life. And it really, for me, I mean, to this day, my success, I completely attribute to everything I learned when I was an athlete in, in high school. I had great teachers, but I had better coaches. Well, Dr. Perry, it's been incredible to have you on here because the work and the, the subject matter that you shared with us today, we truly believe is honestly the, some of the most important stuff out there when it comes to transformational coaching and our ability to impact the lives of young people uh, that we work with um, and just the people just around us in our in our program because like you, you alluded to in earlier parts of the podcast, there is such a lack of human connection out there. I mean, this stuff isn't just great for performance so we can get our players to play better. It obviously is critical to those things, but it's also just the human connection, the relationships. The reason why we coach, you know, all the listeners of this podcast, they coach because they want to improve the relationships. Those are becoming harder and harder to build based to do some of the obstacles uh, that, that we face. And uh, you've just done a great job, of, I think, of illuminating for us how instead of becoming more of the problem, we as coaches are really, really critical part of the solution uh, of helping young people. So we're just really, really thankful for you just coming on here and sharing with us. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity. And I, I, I think what you guys are doing is so important. And, you know, Megan Bartlett is such a great uh, partner for us and kind of addressing these issues. I, I'm completely convinced that um, it, 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 education needs to appreciate the power of sport um, more than it traditionally does. You know, there's so many people that are in education that view sport as an add-on and or sort of a, a, a luxury. But in, in my opinion, I think sport is at the very core of successful education. And, and that rather than sort of de-emphasizing it, we need to integrate um, it into our educational systems in a much healthier way, a much more pervasive way. So keep up the good work, guys. Well, that's it for our conversation with Dr. Bruce Perry. So grateful for him coming on the podcast. You've got to check out his book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. It's a game changer. Now, we've got some incredible events at Thrive on Challenge coming up. Uh, on April 5th in Chicago, we are running a coaching culture workshop, all-day intensive workshop for coaches and their staff. Um, also on April 4th, the day before that, Nate Sanderson, and Mark Cassio are running a basketball workshop for basketball coaches. Uh, we encourage you to check out more of the details at thriveonchallenge.com forward slash public dash workshop. Also, our coaches retreat has a few spots left. That's August 3rd through 6th in Park City, Utah. And lastly, if you're interested in bringing Nate or I into your organization to speak to your club, to your athletic department, shoot us an email. We'd love the opportunity to come in and share uh, and go deeper than the podcast with your people.